While the ushers are finishing up, you can open your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 15 today. I've been looking forward to this uh, particular sermon for some time. In part because of the work of grace that God's done in my life um, around this parable. Um, there, There are two kinds of people. Outside the church, essentially, <laughs> someone said there are two kinds of two kinds of people in the world: those who divide people into two kinds, and those who don't. Um, so this is kind of reductionistic, I realize, but two kinds of people outside of the church that kind of look at the church: one, people who think <clears throat> they're not good enough for the church, church slash God slash Christians, and those who think they're too good for. Her the church I was driving up route 30 yesterday and I saw in the car next to me at a bumper sticker it said religion led me to atheism and if you have conversations with people who don't know Jesus um, and aren't really interested in him you'll often find that they think that uh, excuse me the church is full of hypocrites and people who say one thing and do something entirely different so they would look at the church and say i'm too good for the church but then there's those folks too that feel like they're just they don't, they wouldn't measure up and uh and and wouldn't meet the standard whatever they perceive that standard to be um i'm convinced based on conversations that i have with people inside the church that to a large extent that's also true in the church what i mean is that there are some people that sit in here on a Sunday morning and sit in every church on Sunday morning and think about all the folks around them. I'm messed up, but these people aren't. And then another group of people that sit there and think, um, these people are all messed up, and I'm not. And what Jesus tries to do in this parable that we're going to look at this morning is detonate both of those lies and it's important just as important uh that one gets detonated as the other but the focus this morning that jesus has in this parable is probably not the focus that you're accustomed to hearing come out of this parable this is often called the parable of the prodigal son and yet you'll notice as we begin reading that there are two sons in the story And in fact, the backdrop of why Jesus is even telling these stories indicates that he is more concerned about the son we often don't pay any attention to than he is the other son. Uh, Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 16. No, starting at verse 11. To illustrate the the point further, Jesus told them this story now. Um, If you have a more literal translation, it simply starts out and. um, But this is a reflection of what the text is intended to say, meaning all of these three stories have been told with a common purpose in mind. I want to address the criticism of the Pharisees who are concerned and bothered by the fact that a lot of undesirable people hang out with Jesus. And so to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. Man had two sons. The younger son told his father, 
I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, this, this, Jesus would have been told the story about a Jewish man. And if you know anything at all about Judaism and the law of Moses, you would know this is a bad deal. Jews don't have anything to do with pigs. But he's in the fields feeding the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now, do you kind of get the, note, the inclination or the, uh, the idea here that he's not really all that concerned about what he did wrong? I mean, he acknowledges he sinned, but he's really concerned about food. And so he has this scheme concocted. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard the music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Ah, your brother's back, he was told. And your father has killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years... I've slaved for you. I never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. And yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Let's pray together. Father, it may be that we look back on our history and we see in ourselves the younger son. It may be we look back on our history and see ourselves as the younger or the older son. Perhaps the important question is, who do we see ourselves as today? 
in one of these two sons or someplace else. And a probably even more important question to ask than that is, who is the father in the story? What's he like? Have we concluded that he is like he's depicted in the story, or is he someone else? Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us in such a way this morning that we have a rightful understanding both of who you are and of whom we are. Lord, we worship you as the king of heaven and earth and even the king of our hearts who has made us and who has loved us and in Jesus Christ for so many of us has called us to be your own. We worship you this morning. We also realize that our perception of ourselves and you has been shaped and molded by this world, by how things are typically run in this world, and by the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, both of whom are invested in us having falsified understandings of both ourselves and you. And so because of that, we pray for Uh, you to bind the enemy this morning for you to constrain him so that he can neither influence us nor speak to us nor um, in any way reshape us away from what is true we love you jesus name amen it's important to note that both of these sons are trying to get what they want. In other words, they're doing different things, but the, both of them are after getting what it is that they want. Now, um, I alluded to how impactful this story has been to me um, over the years, and that's uh, primarily due to this book, and I encourage you to get it and read it if you've never read it. It's, it's very brief. Uh, it's very small. Um, about 130 pages or so, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Subtitle, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. Um, And the whole book is simply on this story. It's interesting, he calls it the story of the prodigal God, not the prodigal son. And I'll explain why a little bit. Keller says in this book, and I'm going to allude to a number of quotes from it uh, throughout the message. He says, Jesus is refining everything we thought we knew about connecting with God. He is redefining sin, what it means to be lost, and what it means to be saved. And hopefully I can contribute to that um, enlightening a little bit today. So we've got two sons and a dad. We've got the first son who comes back to the father saying, I deserve nothing. And as I said, we've got people in the world who believe their lives are such a train wreck that they deserve nothing. And then we've got other people who believe that they deserve something. Now, this man didn't start out believing that he deserved nothing. In fact, he believed, uh, he saw himself as very entitled. He went to his father and did something that was unthinkable, would have been unthinkable of a Middle Eastern son in that era. And that was that he asked his father for his inheritance before his father has died. Now, I don't know about you, but I can just imagine if one of my children came to me while I'm in good health and upright and said to me, Dad, we want, I, I want my inheritance. And first of all, I'd say, well, that might not amount to much. 
And second of all, I might need that. Uh, I don't know how, you know, I, my father is 90 years old. My mother is going to turn 90 in another two months. And so Betty looks at me and says, you got good genes. You're going to be around for a long time. I'm like, I don't really want to be around that long. But if I am, I'm going to need some of that money, right? It was incredibly dishonoring, though. I might just say no because of practical reasons, but this would have been incredibly offensive to this father. He would have heard in the young man's request, one, you don't care whether I live or die. And two, by virtue of the fact that the son split, as soon as he was given his money, he doesn't really care about his dad, period. He's not going to hang around. He's not going to look after him. He's not going to take care of him. But what the father did was just as unthinkable as what the son asked. For a father to be willing to give that money to him at this stage in his life was just, it just wasn't, just wasn't done. And so the man gets his money. He's the younger son, so he would have gotten a third of the estate. And the, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of this estate. Now, this would have been more than simply uh, dad going to the safety deposit box or going down to the bank and getting a check out and giving it to his son. Most of his holdings would have been in real estate, and so he would have had to sell land in order to get the money to give to his son. His son gets the money, and off he goes to live life the way he wants to live it. And so he is chasing, as I said, both of these sons are pursuing what it is they want by doing certain things. He is chasing pleasure. And so he goes to this far country and he lives just, uh, just self-indulgent life. We don't know what all took place. We can imagine he's in the bars, he's buying drinks for everybody, and he's throwing parties, and the older son is accusing him later of having spent his money on prostitutes. Undoubtedly, he would have done that. He's having a high old time. Now, I suspect that he, because of who he was, and he has a father who's taking care of him all along, that he might not have had a lot of experience in handling money. And maybe doesn't really realize that when you don't have money working for you in any way, you're simply spending it, it's going to go away sooner or later. And that's exactly what happens. The money runs out. And it was an incredibly bad time for the money to run out because that's about the time that a famine begins to sweep the land. Now, we're so far removed from an agrarian society, we might not even process it. We don't realize what happens down on the farm ultimately affects us in the supermarket. But it does. And so here's this here's this famine sweeping the land. So he's out of money and jobs are in short supply. He finally finds a farmer that's willing to hire him and his job is to go out in the field and feed the pigs. And he gets so hungry that even the pods that the pigs are being served look good to him. But apparently nobody even gives him those pods. I always used to think when I was a kid when I'd hear this story that he's eating with the pigs and that's really not what it says. In fact, it says no one gave him anything. In fact, his, the fact that he was starving was what pushed him to go back home and, and plead with his father to give him a second chance and to let him just be a hired man. He came to the end of himself. Don't miss this little piece of the story. He thinks that the, the, the way to find great joy is to get out of the situation that he's currently in and, and find, do something new, find something new. And one of the things that I've observed over the years I've been a pastor is the heartache that often comes from premature decisions. 
people feel like maybe they're in a job that they hate and uh, like I just I can't I can't put up with this and one of the questions I'll usually ask is are you know are your needs being met is this a job that provides for you yeah yeah it provides well for my family but I just hate it and so they leave the job and and then they don't get something that provides for them what they need for their family and they bounce from maybe a low-level dead-end job from one to the other and they look back longingly on what they once had or maybe they're in a marriage and it's not a great marriage it's pretty rocky and and one person just says I, I just want out of it I just want out of it one of the things that I've shared over the years with couples that feel like that is I said do you realize that statistically this is based on uh, scientific research that most of the people who get out of bad marriages um, look back in five years and regret it. And conversely, most of the people that stay in bad marriages five years later look back and say, I'm really glad I stayed in. But we have this momentary frustration and dissatisfaction for where we're at right now, and we just, we just want out of it. It's just it's got to change. You know, you moms that are dealing with small children right now, you're just like, oh, if they could just stop being three and start being 14, something like that. And then you get to 14, and you're like, oh, if they were just three again. I could keep them in the house at least, you know, and I knew where, I'd know where they are and who they're hanging out with and so forth. Isn't, but isn't that human nature? We always want something more than we have right now, and we think that that's the path to great joy and great excitement, and all of a sudden we're in a foreign country broke and starving to death, and all of a sudden home looks far better than it did five years ago. And so it gives back to his dad. And his dad takes him in. I mean, isn't it a beautiful picture? Dad sees him coming far off in the distance. Doesn't wait till he gets home and read him a riot act and say, you've offended me deeply. And you know, give him this kind of uh, chewing out and then restore him. Now he runs to him, embraces him, he kisses him. So delighted to see him. One of the simplistic ways that we often read this story is that this is just a story that reminds us that God will always take us back no matter what we've done. And there's truth to that. But it's not the main reason for this parable or the two that Jesus told before it. Remember the context? Pharisees were criticizing Jesus because he is um, hanging out with and spending time with and seems to be, have these people drawn to him, tax collectors and prostitutes and, and, and lepers, people that are the unsavory, undesirable of the world. And yet Jesus, this, this rabbi from God, spends so much time with them. What's wrong with you, Jesus? And so Jesus tells about a lost coin, he tells about a lost sheep, and now he tells about two lost sons to address their problems of seeing themselves as elite in God's eyes. See, that's the fundamental problem here. It's, it, yet God cares about lost things. But the problem is, you Pharisees, you don't see yourselves as lost. 
You're missing out on that peace. God embraced this son who lived a riotous, riotous life. But meanwhile, there's this other son over here who's got a different problem. And that is, he believes he deserves something. He is the offended party. This guy comes in from the fields. He's doing all the things that he needs to do for his father's estate, for his uh, uh, farm. And he hears the sound of music and a party when he comes back. What's going on? Well, the servants tell him, oh, your, your brother's come home. And no doubt the servant thinks that older brother's going to be happy to hear younger brother's home. Your brother's come home, and so your dad's thrown a big party for him. He's killed a fatted calf. There's going to be ribeyes on the grill tonight. Isn't that awesome? And the text says in verse 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Now, again, this was unthinkable. We would think today as a dad, that's, that's something normal that we would do. Go out and, oh, just kind of put your grievances aside. Come in and join the party. It'll be okay. Come on and join the party. But in a first century Middle Eastern culture, for a father to have to beg his son like this to treat him with honor, unthinkable. And yet that's what he does. And the other son lashes out at him. He says, I've done everything for you. I've, done, I, I've made sure that all the people out in the fields are doing their jobs. When there's a loss of an animal, I've done the investigative work to find out what happened. Are our hired hands stealing animals or did it just run off or was it eaten by animals? I've taken care of all that. When some of our managers are at each other's throats, I've made sure that that doesn't bother you. I've taken care of it. I do all the books. I stay up late at night doing all the books. I've been loyal to you. I've stayed here while this bum has been running all over the countryside using your money. And yet in all that time, you've never even given me so much as a goat to have a party with my friends. You see, he was chasing something as well. And it, the means by which he was doing it was his loyalty to his father. I'm going to stick it out here. I'm going to stay with you. I want something from you. What was he chasing? What was he pursuing? Approval. Dad's approval. I want you to think well of me. Certainly this younger brother of mine, he's run off. He's embarrassed you. He's humiliated you. He's mistreated you, but not me. I'm here all along. You can count on me, but I expect there to be payment as a result. You see, what assassinates grace is not immorality or gross sin, but it's trusting in my upstanding morality instead of the gospel. Who we are and what we do as religious people are decisively shaped by the kind of God we worship. Ken the Dean, an almost Christian, let me read it again. Who we are and what we do as religious people are decisively shaped by the kind of God we worship. A.W. Tozer put it this way. The most important thing about you is what you think of God. Now the story is about two sons, two brothers, 
And yet it's not. It's about who God is. And the picture of the story is a God who is looking at this kind of brother and this kind of person in the church and this kind of person outside of the church. And this other brother, these kind of people in the church and these kind of people out of the church. And is saying, There's, I have grace for you and 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 I have grace for you, have grace for you too. I don't care whether it is that you've lived a life that would embarrass you if it would be read in front of the church on a Sunday morning. And on the other hand, I don't care if you've lived a life that if it was your life was read in front of the church on Sunday morning, you would get an inflated head. Because both of you need grace. And I have grace for both of you. That's what this father is saying. And so I've got grace for both of you. Who we are and what we do as religious people are decisively shaped by the kind of God we worship. What's the kind of God you worship? Now, this is going to be oversimplified, but I'm going to give you three options of the kind of God that you can worship. The first one, I've got two that I'm going to call classic options, but the first one is kind of a our day and age option. Call it the 21st century option. That is that we have a laid back God who basically says to anybody and everybody, hey, whatever. In other words, he has no, no expectations of you, no calling on your life, no, no correction, no, non- hey, whatever. I'm a laid-back God. I'm custom-made for the 21st century. It's more likely that most of us in the church worship one of the other two classic options. Classic option number one, that I am a demanding God. That when you think about God, you always think about a God who's saying over and over and over and over You better do better. You better get it better. You better get it right. You better correct all your problems. You should do better. One of the things that I have taken to asking people in my counseling room is when you imagine God, I think many people, uh, at least folks that are visual, they when we pray or we, we think about God in his heaven that we might craft some picture of him, some at least vague image in our minds. And I ask this question, when you think about God, when you imagine God, when you picture God, is he smiling at you or is he frowning? And your answer is incredibly telling. Is he a demanding God that he's always saying to you, do better? Or the classic option number two, that he is a rewarding God. He's a rewarding God. Meaning that at some point, if you do it well enough, he looks at you and he says, hey, you've succeeded. Good job. That was the older brother. He was convinced that if he could pull it off, he'd just do it right. He'd work on it. He'd get it down to perfection. And the father would pat him on the head and say, awesome. 
You've got, a, you've got my approval because of how well you've done it. And you see what surprises people who are good and bad alike. And people who think that God is on the one hand a demanding God or on the other hand a rewarding God. What surprises them both is grace. It doesn't make sense that God would love you, save you, confirm you apart from your performance. Surely that can't be. And yet when we get grace, it is amazing. I think the younger brother, when he got home, when he saw his father's reaction to him, and in the years ahead, as he remembered back to how he had treated his father, would think, I could never be good enough not to need grace. And I wonder if the older brother ever got to the point where he concluded, beyond, I would never be bad enough to need grace. That was his problem. He didn't think of himself as bad enough to need grace. So why does Tim Keller call his book on this parable the prodigal God? Do you know what prodigal means? Does anybody know what it means? I always thought that it meant bad guy. Prodigal son, bad guy, lives a wild life. The prodigal means to spend in a recklessly extravagant way. Prodigal God, to recklessly spend in an extravagant way. Tim Keller says in the book, one of the signs that you may not grasp the unique radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain that you do. I wonder how many of us can imagine or conceive of being stripped of all of our goodness and all of our works, standing before God and still having God say to us, you are my child. Keller says you can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayer and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior. Let me read this section. I'm going to wrap up here. He's telling about a woman that used to come to, started coming to his church. And she was just blown away by what she was hearing. She said that she had gone to a church all her life, but she had always heard that God only accepts us if we are sufficiently good and ethical. And now she's hearing that God accepts us by grace alone. Remember we sang in Christ alone? She said to him, she said, she's kind of getting excited about this idea of being saved by grace alone. She says, but it's a scary idea. She said, it's a good scary, but still scary. And she said, Tim asked her, why? 
What, what, what was so scary about unmerited free grace? She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She could see immediately that the wonderful beyond-belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had two edges on it. On the one hand, it cut away slavish fear. God loves us freely despite our flaws and failures. And yet she also knew that if Jesus had really done this for her, she was not her own, that she was bought with a price. And that changed everything. Let me have you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. This is a passage that some of you know, probably some of you have memorized. Beginning of verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And then there's a period after that. No caveats, no add-ons, no buybacks. God saved you by his grace when you believed. That's it. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Can you just see... Um, somebody going to heaven and they get in front of God and they say, oh, I'm here to show you my list. I led all these people to Jesus Christ. Aren't you impressed? I gave all this money in the offering. Aren't you impressed? I went to church all these times. Aren't you impressed? I was nice to people that really weren't very love worthy. Aren't you impressed? And God will say, no, I'm not. I gave my son for you. I put him to death for you. And that and that alone is what saved you. Aren't you impressed? Aren't you impressed? I wonder how many of us would say, I'm an older brother in how I think about God and how my life should be. I'm going to read this in closing. This is a final quote from Keller. The first sign that you have an elder brother spirit is that when your life doesn't go as you want. Now, let me just stop there. I wonder how many of you would say right now, my life's not going the way I want. You see, I know a lot of you, and I know that that's true of a lot of us. It's true of me. The first sign that you have an elder brother spirit is that when your life doesn't go the way you want, you aren't just sorrowful, but deeply angry and bitter. Elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, that they should get a good life. That God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to standards. So what happens then if you are an elder brother and things go wrong in your life? If you have been living up to your moral standards, you will be furious with God. Just like the elder brother was with his father. You don't deserve this. You you don't deserve this. You will think after how hard you work. To be a decent person. And I wonder if that's you today. Do you see how believing in the grace of God impinges in all of our thinking as well as all of our doing? 
Can you worship and still praise and exalt and glorify the name of Christ when all the wheels of your life are falling off? Knowing that God owes us nothing except judgment, and yet in Christ he has poured out grace to make us his dear children. And he loves us with an everlasting love. God really doesn't owe us what we think he owes us. And yet he has poured out immeasurably upon us grace upon grace upon grace in Christ. And that is something worth giving him thanks for. Let's pray together. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. What a gracious God you are. Most every other area in our life is measured, engaged, and evaluated and determined whether it's significant or not based on how we perform. That's true in our jobs. That's true in our classroom studies. That's true sometimes in our marriages. It may be true in our role as parents. It may be true in our work in the neighborhood. It may be true based on um, who we vote for and who we don't vote for. It's all about performance. And yet the crazy, wild, wonderful thing about the gospel is it is based not on our performance, but on yours. On the God who saw us in our crisis and our need and came to deliver us through the mission of Jesus Christ. And I want to pray this morning for um, people that might be, as they're weighing some of this out, I want to pray for some that might find themselves in the older brother position. And they're feeling like you've betrayed them. You've not come through for them. Because after all, look at all you've done, they've done for you. I pray that they would find sweetness in the work of Christ. And that that would drive their worship, that would drive their thanksgiving, that would drive their crying out to you for the need in their life. Not that they don't ask you for um, change in whatever it is they're going through. But that they see in it, it that, that even that, should you decide to bring about wholeness, should you decide to bring about restoration, should you decide to bring about transformation, even that would float to them on the wings of grace. May grace become sweeter and precious, more precious to all of us than we could ever imagine as we see ourselves stripped of all of our goodness and worth and see instead Jesus Christ bestowed with all that he is worthy of. In Jesus' name we pray.